There it is, Tom Wilkins. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me I'm going to have some trouble getting my property? Oh, it's not impossible, uh, shall we say, uh, difficult. What kind of a man is Mr. Braddock? Well, Jeff takes what he wants and uh, usually hangs on to it. I'd like to meet him. I thought you would. But I would strongly advise that you retain legal counsel before you start your litigation. <laughs> Whom could I get? Uh, well, <laughs> let me see. If I, well, if I could be of service to you, I... You I'd, certainly uh, could. Of course, if you could see your way clear to uh, advance me a small retainer. <laughs> How much? Oh, practically nothing. Uh, say, a hundred dollars. Shall we say fifty dollars and five thousand if you get my property? Uh, you have that much with you? No, but I'll have it when the property's mine. Oh, good, good. <laughs> then you'll act as my counsel? I should deem it an honor. <sighs> and the uh, $50 now? <laughs> oh, yes. to the bloody pit this is rod barnett and this time out i've got a brand new guest someone who i've admired for years and listened to in the podcast world for a very long time and uh he has been very nice and allowed me to be on his show and i've been a jerk for a very long time and not returned the favor so Having been finally put over a barrel and embarrassed enough about the fact that I haven't invited him to be on my show, I finally (laughs) decided that it was time to do so. Uh, Mainly because uh, the last time that I was on this fellow's show, uh, he pulled a gun on me. Yeah. And uh, hard to do over the internet, but he managed. It's, It's internet magic. No. Actually, everyone, this episode brings... Derek Cook, the purveyor, uh, editor, the creator, the um, man who gave birth to Monster Kid Radio. <laughs> Derek, how are you doing today? I'm good, but I'm a little disappointed. I thought this was the Nashy cast, and I was really looking forward to talking to your co-host over there. But you know, I'll start it for you, but whatever. But tell Troy I said hi, okay? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him. <laughs> I'll let him know. No, hey, we could we I'm could good. pause now. I, I I could text him and let him know now. I no, understand. I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. This is awesome. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. And really, for, how long did it take to get you on my show and scheduling oh, thing? And I think the last time, um, I kind of screwed up the schedule myself. So it, it it's all good, man. No, I'm, well, God, what was the last time? What, what did we talk about the last time I was on your show? I don't even remember anymore. Well, uh, we had you and Dominique Lamsey's on oh. to talk about um, a Bava film, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about Hercules and the Haunted World. And before that, we had you on for Wild Wild Planet. We still need to get you back on to talk about the other films in that kind of sort of franchise. Yeah, the, the, the other three in the Margariti Gamma 1 series, um, they're not all as good as Wild Wild Planet, but they're uh, interesting enough to talk about, that's for sure. Right on. I, 
<laughs> actually last night, speaking of Antonio Margariti, my uh, my lady and I sat down and watched uh, what was the next Mystery Science Theater episode in, in our gauntlet watching. And it was a Margariti film that I absolutely love. <laughs> and it just, it's just like, yeah, yeah, we can make fun of this because, yeah, <laughs> it's got the six million dollar man in it. I know. <laughs> oh, you know what? We had you on for Edgar August Poe as well. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah. We talked about uh, Castle of Blood. That's right. You know, that the one that's based on that very well-known Edgar Allan Poe story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing better than fake Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I would love to have you back on to talk about the kind of sort of remake to that. So. Oh, yeah. Did you ever get your hands on that Blu-ray? I am still working on that. It kind of went out of print, I think. So Really? Uh, I thought so. I'll do some checking. Ooh, okay. You know, we're in the post-holiday money crunch right now, so not a lot of new movies coming into the Monster Kid Radio library at this point. But, you know, I got my eyes open. By the time I have you on, I'm sure I'll have it. Well, uh, as a brief aside, as, uh, you know, Monster Kids, are you as excited as I am about the fact that uh, Scream Factory is going to be putting out that set of Karloff and Lugosi films from Universal. I'm glad I never pulled the trigger on buying some of those Blu-rays from Amazon France uh, or Amazon yeah. Germany. Uh, not, not that I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure those releases are great, but to have them done domestically by a company that I know and, and relatively trust, it's pretty exciting. I cannot wait. Uh, of course, that that only leaves one film from those classic 30s Universal Horror films kind of hanging out there in the wind. And I'm hoping they'll uh, – they must have gotten their hands on it as well. I'm just hoping that they were they release it as a, a single disc. That would be uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. That's the one I'm waiting for, and that's the one that's still in my shopping cart uh, over at uh, – I think it's Amazon France. One of them. France or Germany has got it on blue. I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. I'm kind of hoping that locally or domestically anyway, it'll come out. I love that film. So it would be wonderful to see it on blue. Yeah. I just can't imagine that Scream Factory would cut a deal for all those universals and that not be a part of it. But, you know, we haven't heard anything yet. So I'm glad they're doing it. Universal doesn't really pay a lot of attention to their non top tier monster and genre films from that era. Yeah. So to have somebody else who will generate new special features and take care of the transfer and just kind of shepherd it out for us is just wonderful. So I'm excited for it. Cannot wait. But this being the bloody pit, uh, we're trying to stay away for your visit anyway, from anything <laughs> that might actually happen on Monster Kid Radio. The last time you and I podcasted, we came up with, uh, I forget how we even got onto the subject, but we both made note of the fact that uh, being William Castle fans, Mill Creek, was it Mill Creek that put this set out? Yeah. Had just put out this set of eight early westerns directed by William Castle when he was a contract player for uh, Columbia and a few other studios before he branched out on his own. Certainly not something you could cover on your show without really stretching the bounds of what Monster Kid Radio <laughs> would be. But I'm more than willing to fit almost anything into the bloody pit that uh, can be pushed down and shoved into podcast form. So here we are. I'm excited. I, I like William Castle a lot. I don't know as much about him outside of the genre stuff that we know him for. I think it's fascinating, though, that he had a career going back to like the what early 40s. Yeah. yeah. Before he started doing the gimmicky stuff. And I don't 
use the word gimmicky, you know, in a, a negative fashion. I love that stuff. But that he did westerns and dramas, and you know, he did a movie called The Fat Man that I really liked. It was based on a radio TV uh, radio program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and Hollywood Story, which stars the late Julie Adams, um, yeah. it's just fantastic. And that one I will eventually talk about on MKR on Monster Kid Radio because it's Julie Adams. It's got uh, Henry Hole in it, and it's my show. I do what I want. So, um, <laughs> you know, eventually I'll get to it. But yeah, this is going to be fun because I mean, these are some old school Hollywood westerns. I'm looking forward to it yeah and being old school hollywood westerns there's a there's a really limited audience for it to a degree i think and i love this stuff i'm a fan of uh both the big budget westerns of classic hollywood and the b stuff as well because i i just love the genre you're right castle in his early career when he was learning the trade i mean he spent three years uh, at Columbia before he was allowed to direct his first film because he was, he was put through the ringer. He was forced to learn, you know, all aspects of filmmaking before the man who read Columbia would let him actually take over a picture. And I think that having that uh, kind of a system in place, and it was the studio system, of course, allowed him to learn his craft well enough that he could, well, at certain points in his career, be turning out three or four films a year because it was a machine. You know, you just, you get in there, you're told what to do, you take the script to do the best you can, and you make the picture. That stood him in good stead when he finally branched out on his own and started making uh, his own movies in the late 50s, starting with Macabre. Now, we're both... Obviously, huge fans of William Castle's horror films when he branched out on his own and started producing his own films. But since we're going to be talking about a pair of his westerns tonight, it'd be a good idea to know um, how much of a fan of the western genre are you? I kind of came to westerns in a weird, well, probably a unique way, different than any other genre that I've grown to love over the years. I say this on my show all the time. I used to think I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up, right? And when I graduated high school, the local community college had a video production course. You could take the class three times for credit. I ended up taking it six times because I loved it so much. I had access to all of their editing equipment and that sort of thing. And anytime I could dovetail or or squeeze a video production assignment into an assignment for another course or another class, I would. And I had a humanities class that somehow or other I managed to convince the teacher to allow me to show one of the movies that or I guess, yeah, movies that I made for the video production course as an assignment. So I did. And people started asking me about it and what kind of movies do I like and that sort of thing. And I said, you know, I love all kinds of movies except Westerns. I'm not a big fan. First of all, yeah, here's the thing. This was in Wyoming. So Westerns are kind of a thing in Wyoming. Yeah, Uh, I can see that. And rodeos and cowboys and all of that, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of that cowboy country culture. But after I said that, after the class, uh, a student came up to me who I was also in a creative writing course with and said, you know, you, you probably should give Westerns a shot. There's, some of them are really great story t- uh, stories. And he said something about some of them being Shakespearean. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I started watching some of them and I started with a uh, fistful of dollars and I loved it. And ever since I've made sure that I've kept my ears open for Westerns and, and o- opened that part of my a movie watching and movie loving, and I've just fallen in love with them, especially once I started really getting into spaghetti westerns, and I was all in. 
Well, then, um, what uh, what would you call? Well, what would be your favorite western? If you have a favorite western or a favorite five or ten westerns, what uh, what would you list off as being ones that you think are the either your favorites or the the kind of the top of the heap? So, when you told me we were going to do this and, and talk about some of these westerns, I tried to think about some of my favorites. And as much as I love spaghetti westerns, I still haven't seen. So many that I could tell you, well, th- these five spaghetti westerns are the absolute best. So the best I can do is tell you which ones I enjoy the most and, and kind of maybe inform who I am as a Western fan. Yeah. But they're not all spaghetti Westerns either. I mean, I really enjoy Winchester 73 with James Stewart. Yeah. yeah. Um, th- th- this one is so good. It- it's got a great story about a couple of brothers and Walla Winchester. It's just wonderful. And James Stewart was great in a number of Westerns uh, with the passing of Julie Adams. I've been watching a lot of her movies and, you know, Bend of the River is also another phenomenal film. Yes. Anthony Mann made both those films. He's just, uh, he was just an amazing filmmaker. Yeah. And I mean, you can't think about Clint Eastwood without thinking about Westerns. My favorite Clint Eastwood Western, if you would call it a Western, I, I guess I kind of would. It's The Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, it's it's a Western. I, I adore this movie. It is uh, an epic, and I just love everything about it. The performances, not just Clint, but everybody around him as well. Uh, it's epic. And that's one of the things that I like about some of the American Westerns is that they're so epic. Mm-hmm. Whereas the spaghetti westerns that I enjoy seem to be smaller and tighter stories, typically about somebody getting revenge on somebody else. And I, I enjoy the heck out of that, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so if I was to shift gears a little bit, uh, as far as spaghetti westerns go, uh, The Big Gun Down. Yeah. I love that one. Uh, El Rojo with Richard Harrison, uh, which is another uh, favorite of mine. I also enjoy his gunfight in the Red Sands, also known as, I believe, Green... Uh, I don't remember the other titles are. They all have a thousand different titles. <laughs> yes, but, they but do. I, I enjoyed that one quite a bit too. And then just yesterday, I watched uh, a movie that I picked up on Blu-ray at the end of last year, and I picked it up solely because it was promoted as a, a unique spaghetti western with a different take on the spaghetti western hero and all that. It's called Requiem for a Gringo. Have you I'm seen this? Not sure I know that one. So I don't know much about the film itself. I just watched it yesterday for the first time, and I fell in love with it from the Hmm. opening credits, from the music. Uh, I'm a big film score guy. People who know me know that I collect my film scores. I love them. Uh, And the film score in Requiem for a Gringo is fan. Oh, man, it's so good. It's epic, but it's got a little bit of spooky to it. And and this movie's got some spooky gothicness stuff going on. Uh, The music was by Angelo uh, Francesco Lavanino, I think is how it's pronounced, um, Mm -hmm. who did a lot of the work there. Uh, The movie stars Lang Jeffries, and he plays, uh, you know, a spaghetti western hero, except he wears a leopard print poncho. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I don't know where he got it in the Old West, but whatever. And he really pays attention he okay. killed a leopard. Come on. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he really pays attention to the movement of the stars. Some places say he's an astrologer. Other places say he's an astronomer, depending on which website you look at. I'm just thinking he's somebody who really pays attention to the movement of the stars and wants to know when the eclipse is happening. Because the finale of the film takes place during an eclipse, uh, a total solar eclipse. And he and uh, Fernando Sancho, who's a great villain in all of these films uh, to have a, a confrontation at the end and it is so 
cool. And it speaks to me as a fan of, you know, mo- not monster movies, but genre films, horror films. It's got a lot of smoke and mist. And is he over there? No. Well, that's not really him. That's just a shadow. It, it's just really cool. So I'd recommend it, man. I, I loved this movie. I've never heard of this movie before in my life. I, I can't wait to see it. How did you get your hands on it? Uh, you know, I pay attention to websites like, um, you know, Spaghetti Western, I think, .net. And yeah. uh, even though I shouldn't for my wallet's sake, I'm always looking <laughs> at Wild East's website. And yeah. I think it's Wild East who put it out. So that, that's how I found out about it. Um, it really does have some touches of, of Euro horror, I feel like. With the way it's kind of constructed, especially at the end. When you do watch it, and for any listeners who are interested in checking this thing out, there are some things that happen around the midway point, maybe about a third of the way through, where it does feel like some things kind of jump in terms of the story. Like, well, wait, how did he get to this point? But it all is wrapped up at the end in a beautiful way. So it all makes sense. And again, it speaks to the guy, the monster kid in me. It speaks to the cowboy kid in me. I, I love it. And I could gush about this movie for quite some time. I'm not going to, cause that's not what we're talking about here today. <laughs> but man, when you see it, I'd be interested to hear what you think about it. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that I will end up talking about it or writing about it one way or another. Um, when I think about my favorite Westerns, it's a, it's a really weird mixed bag of things from both the States and the spaghetti Western genre, which I love dearly as far as like American made stuff. I well, there's okay. First of all, there's the mixed one. There's Once Upon a Time in the West, which oh, yeah. is Sergio Leone coming over here and you know getting the film where John Ford shot his westerns and making. If you want to talk epic, yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West. If it's not in the title, if it doesn't slap you in the face <laughs> with the epic nature of what's going on, then uh, just look at the cast and. Right move on from there. Henry Fonda playing the most evil villain you done ever seen. So that's, if not my favorite, pretty close to it. Um, I'm also a fan of a number of, um, films that John Wayne made, including Rio Bravo, which is Ooh. almost, it's, it's too long, but it's almost the perfect American kind of just boiled down into perfection of what a kind of mythological Western is. Um, great cast, Dean Martin, who's phenomenal in it. And uh, it's Walter Brennan. It's just a great film, but also Howard Hawks film, uh, red river, which is an incredible, incredible film. I uh, recently finally got my hands on the criterion disc of that. And I, I haven't watched it yet, but I've seen the movie so many times over the years. I'm I'm kind of trying to make myself forget certain things so that I can come fresh to it if I can. <laughs> I love that though. That's great. It's like, oh, I want to watch it now, but I'm already thinking about it, and I already know. So <laughs> now in the spaghetti western area, yeah, if you started with a fistful of dollars, that's a really good starting place because <laughs> that's. That, that leads you right into the Leone films, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I also uh, absolutely love uh, The Great Silence and uh, a number of the films that uh, were made in Spain, primarily Spanish productions. Uh, among the favorites for me would be uh, Cutthroat's Nine, which is a very bleak and bitter film, but very good. 
yeah. I've had people tell me I need to watch that. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've, it's been recommended by multiple folks. It's very good. Uh, we covered it over on the Nashi cast a long time back, and it's one of those movies that's extraordinarily good. But yeah, it be, be prepared for a number of gut punches along the way, but it's really well done. Okay. I'm curious, since you uh, since you had no real interest in westerns, and you know, as a child, and that's where most most Americans get their indoctrination into the love of the western genre. Um, was it just because of where you grew up that you kind of pushed against the standard that was around you, or was there something about the genre that kind of pushed you away initially when you were younger? You know, it just I was a sci-fi Star Wars kid growing up. I was. Star Wars all the time. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. My dad was military, and you know the only th- the thing that I brought with me was Star Wars. I, I didn't really go and pursue what the other kids were into when I would meet a new kid in a new neighborhood or whatever, moving around and all that. So I was strictly just science fiction, science fiction. Maybe a little bit of Star Trek here, but mostly Star Wars. Now, as I've grown, obviously, I mean that changed, and then being in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and being kind of in the heart of all of this cowboy culture. There was a little bit of, I suppose, rebellion to it, just not really caring, not liking the country music, not caring about rodeo or frontier days or any of these things that are happening. I just I didn't care uh, until that guy whose name I forget said something about watching Westerns and, and giving them another shake. And uh, I mean, forever grateful for it, but just it never really caught my interest. And I don't know why that is. I, you'd think it would because I was prime age for it, prime, prime demographic to go out and play cowboys and Indians with my friends, but I never did. It's understandable from my perspective because I was a science fiction, you know, kid as when I was younger as well. I, you know, I grew up watching and reading, especially reading just lots and lots of science fiction. And it never even occurred to me to be that worried about Westerns. They were just, um, they, they kind of permeated the culture. There was no way to avoid them. And uh, to a large degree, I watched them, but I didn't think that much of them because I didn't I didn't really ever go out of my way to seek them out until eh, late teens, early 20s, when I started uh, going through certain Westerns because I started going through the careers of certain filmmakers. Now, here's the thing about Westerns, okay? As, uh, you know, both of us get a little older... There's a something I need to point out to you that I hope that uh, people listening to us will understand, and maybe maybe you've encountered it, dear listener yourself. Um, a long time ago, a dear friend of mine pointed out that there comes a point in a lot of men's lives when, for some reason, all they want to watch is westerns. <laughs> I mean, that's it to the point where I think. That the moment the Western Channel was created, there was what I would refer to as the Great Settling. In other words, I think that as soon as uh, the Encore Western Channel reached enough households nationwide, I think that it would be possible to, if you could, hear male buttocks settling into couches and recliners on a regular basis with the channel locked and uh, the, the TVs would never have to move. I remember visiting my father on multiple occasions and it didn't matter what Western was on because my dad could fall asleep in front of the television, wake up, fall back asleep, go feed the dog, go to work, 
come back. And it didn't matter all that much because it was a Western. He could figure it out. He didn't need all the details. He kind of had them stored in his brain anyway. As you get older, either a good or a bad thing that Westerns are kind of this bizarre male comfort viewing. <laughs> now, I, I, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> I have alerted the, the, the fine lady in my life that if she starts to notice that I never moved the television from the Western channel and that she's the only person who ever ships it from that channel, then she is to put me down. I clearly have gone <laughs> off and lost my mind and uh, my brain's turning to tapioca because all I want is one type of entertainment. And that's not me. That's not natural. So that's something we have to, uh, to be aware of and, and fight against. But I, I can see that though. I mean, there's just kind of a, yeah, you said it best comfort food. Uh, yeah. You know, I would go home and I would well, go home. Excuse me. I would go visit my grandparents when we were growing up. My grandparents lived in Arizona phoenix in that area so the the possibility of running into a lot of that cowboy culture was still down there too and uh, i would go down there to visit them and i was so frustrated as a kid i was so frustrated as a kid because i would want to watch something on tv and all there were were reruns of gunsmoke and the riflemen <laughs> and, and all these these tv westerns that my grandfather loved yeah but man i'm a kid where, where where's where's Something. Give me Buck Rogers. Give me Star Trek. I don't care. I don't, don't want to watch Chuck Connors. I want to watch you know, Captain Kirk. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I learned and I know better now and I appreciate the Rifleman and I appreciate some of these things. But, yeah, yeah. you know, maybe that's just like a level when we level get to a certain level as a man, I guess that's what you, you have to be careful. <laughs> I, I, I worry that it's a sign of encroaching dementia. So. I'm trying to do self-checks every now and then. <laughs> I can see it, though. I mean, despite the fact that I have maybe ridden a horse three times in my life, I've never fired a six-shooter, and I haven't owned a cowboy hat since I was a little kid, and my parents <laughs> bought me one because they thought I would like it. I could totally see <laughs> just settling down and, and putting up, especially because, at least for me as a monster kid, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people, and maybe even you too, Westerns of the 50s, because so many of them were made under the studio system, we're going to see some of the actors that turned up in the 50s monster movies as well. Yes, I've mentioned yes. Julie Adams quite a bit, and everybody knows, you know, I love that woman. I, I'm still kind of processing my thoughts about her passing. But another another mainstay of a lot of these movies that we love, John Agar. John Agar did so many Westerns. So yes. with John Wayne. Yes, and, he did. You know, he's phenomenal. He's just so much fun to watch. He's charismatic as heck. And, uh Yeah. I mean, I, I could see the getting trapped. You know? <laughs> like, oh, I'm just going to watch another John Agar movie. Well, oh, I think that you know? I can't remember how old I was when um, I suddenly realized or had it pointed out to me. And it was probably in something that I was reading because I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I can never stop. And at some point, I stumbled across the realization that in a lot of cases – other films in other genres are westerns. They are the same stories being transplanted to outer space mm -hmm. or other lands. I mean, um, I've had it argued that more than half of films produced every year still are basically westerns dressed up in other clothing. And that makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about it. 
And I think it may have been uh, John Carpenter years ago who flat out said that the reason he started making movies is he wanted to wait. He wanted to make Westerns. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is a direct remake of Rio Bravo. And he I was going to bring that up, man. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, that, that's one of my favorite Carpenter films. Yeah. Uh, and, because of you know, that. It's so good. He never got to make a straight Western as a director, although he did write a couple. Mm-hmm. But the the love of the genre and the realization that Escape from New York is essentially a Western, just dressed up in post-apocalyptic drag, that's that's a that's a realization that comes to you and you suddenly start to see it all around you. There's a reason why he put Lee Van Cleef in that film. Yes. You know, not so, not just because yeah. Lee Van Cleef was a walking, talking, acting God. But. Sure. But the Western connection is strong there. Yes. And you're absolutely right. You can there, there are a lot of stories to have that Western structure, but maybe wearing different skin. I was never really a big fan of it, but. I'm told the series Firefly is basically a space western. Oh, it, um, it it's overt. It makes yeah. it very plain in every way that that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's pervasive, man. If you go looking for it, it's hard to avoid it. it it's especially in American media, American entertainment. It's all over the place. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but one of my absolute favorite episodes of Star Trek, the original is Spectre of the Gun, just because they do a bunch of stuff with, you know, the Dalton gang. So, I mean, it, it's there, man. <laughs> I am not a fan of Spectre of the Gun, but I respect your love of it. It's a third season episode of Trek, I believe. So I totally, oh, yeah. I totally understand why some people don't put it as high on the list as others. But uh, I'm a weirdo, though, because I have a. I have a weird tendency to do uh, to defend a lot of this third season of the original Trek because oh, me too. There's some don't get me wrong. <laughs> there's some low points, but the high points are amazing. Sure. And uh, I think I still think the best season overall is the second season. Sure. Because the uh, first season has a couple of clunkers in it, but uh, the second season really doesn't. Third <laughs> season's got like five or six real clunkers. <laughs> One of the things I love about Spectre of the Gun, though, is that some of the actors they have in there playing some of the cowboy types yeah. have been in American Westerns playing some of those characters. And I think that's pretty neat to look at. And there was a, you know, man, totally all over the place. There was a TV series in the 80s that I've been dying to get my hands on. I haven't really found it anywhere. I don't think it's ever been released on DVD. It was called, I think, was it just called Outlaw or The Outlaws? I don't know. So uh, it was 86, 87, uh, and it was a, a group of uh, ne'er-do-wells, bandits or whatever, and a sheriff having a showdown in the Old West, and there's a thunderstorm. I think they're struck by lightning, and suddenly they're transported to modern day. And oh, <laughs> in the something late 80s, rings a bell. And they decide to open a detective agency. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, now that doesn't ring a bell. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, really? Rod Taylor was in it. <laughs> really? Rod Taylor and Charles Napier was in it. Yeah. And oh, holy crap. One of the final episodes uh, was like they did some flashback stuff and they used clips of old Westerns that they had done to show those characters doing things in the past. Uh, Richard Roundtree was in it. 
oh, I'm, I must see this. Yeah, if anybody's got any leads on this show, listeners, man, let me know. Let Rob know. I, I got to see this thing again. Yeah. I remember growing up and loving it. Even though I didn't like Westerns, I liked the sci-fi element of it. They time traveled some reason, for some reason. I thought that was cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. My mind is blown now. But <laughs> as, as you might have expected, Derek, what we've been doing here is kind of uh, mirroring what you do on Monster Kid Radio. This isn't the classic five that you play with all your guests. This is tell me five Westerns that you actually enjoyed. And I think we've, uh, we've greatly exceeded that. So <laughs> <laughs> there is no prize other than you get to uh, suffer through recording with me even longer than this. Hey, I've loved it, man. This has been fun so far. I, I want to ask, um, since we're talking about Westerns, do you read Westerns? You know, rarely, but I do occasionally, yeah. Okay. And what it is, is I sometimes get the urge to read something a little outside what I've been reading, even though I jump around from mysteries and science fiction and horror novels, all kinds of different stuff. But I'll want to shake things up a bit, and occasionally I will grab some old Western just out of a used bookstore just for the heck of it. And a few years ago, one of my uh, dastardly friends pointed me toward a series of uh, Western novels called Edge. E, you know, E-D-G-E, Edge. And it was this series Western, I think there were 43 of them published. And the reason he pointed them out, they were known, as a matter of fact, advertised specifically as the most violent Westerns ever written. That was the point. Um, So I picked up a few of them, and they are violent. I mean, they're (laughs) extraordinarily violent. Bullets don't hit people. We get, you know, graphic descriptions of what is happening when these bullets hit people, things of that nature. But other than that, they're pretty inventive Westerns. They're, you know, if you've ever read a Western novel... This is a pretty good example of one just with the violence cranked up to about 11. Okay. So those are fun, but, you know, recommended with that caveat, as long as you know going in that what it says on the cover about being violent is absolutely true. I can kind of recommend them. So as far as the Edge novels go, and unfortunately it didn't make it past the pilot stage. Yeah, yeah. Amazon did produce a, a pilot. Yep. Loved and it. I, and I think it was it was either written or directed by Shane Black. It was uh, Shane Black and Fred Decker. And Fred Decker was also involved as yeah. well. And and I loved it, too. I thought it was great. Uh, unfortunately, Amazon chose not to develop it as a series, which is too bad because it would have been amazing. Yes, which means uh, they ignored all of my emails. Yeah, yeah, basically mine, too. But I thought it was great. And uh, I remember reading that it was based on Edge and it's supposed to be – it was really – gritty, violent, over-the-top thing. And I thought, well, you know, that's not normally what I always go to, but I'll, I'll go check it out. And I just haven't done it yet. But now that you've said something, it's back up to the top of the got-to-check-it-out list. If you run across any, you know, you don't have to worry about trying to read them in order or anything because they're, you know, that's the way those were written. It's, it's like old series television. Just pick one up at random and you'll get it and go on. So you can run across them usually in the Western sections of most used bookstores. That's how I've picked up the ones that I have. (laughs) I I wonder sometimes uh, what people think when they see me come into a used bookstore. We have a bookstore (laughs) here called Powell's city of books. It's like the the country's largest independent bookstore. It's an entire city block. Uh, It's amazing. And their rooms are 
color coded and, and I always go to the gold room because the gold room is where the fantasy, science fiction, horror and mystery <laughs> are. Uh, and I always go in there and the first thing I do is go to the H's to see if they have any new editions of any Robert E. Howard. Then I go look at the Lovecraft stuff and then I go look at anthologies and that sort of thing. And I spend all this time in the genre stuff. And then I always go to the Westerns and I wonder what people, <laughs> you know, is this guy wearing this Bela Lugosi t-shirt wandering in, spending a lot of time looking at horror and science fiction. And then he wanders over to the Westerns and picks up like a James Reasoner novel. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's more crossover between the two genre fan systems than you would think. You know, it's interesting, interesting now in the day and age of like indie publishing, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have a Kindle or an e-reader. Um, oh but, Yeah. You can get so many books now uh, at a at a lower price than normal, hopefully, uh, as an ebook on your Kindle, and there mm-hmm. are a ton of amazing westerns being published there. You know, C. Courtney Joyner, uh, filmmaker, does a lot of genre stuff. He's written a couple western novels, and they're good. Uh, Shotgun, it's a series. Uh, it's a guy who he has a shotgun for a left arm, but I mean, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm already a fan. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you can find some crossover there. And with all the indie publishing, you can find so much. I mentioned James Reasoner. I follow his blog. And every week he's like, here's a forgotten book you haven't heard about. And it's like, oh, OK, I'll add that to the list. Oh, there's uh, nothing better than having someone that you can trust to recommend stuff outside mm-hmm. of your usual wheelhouse. It's great. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I like James Reasoner as a novelist. He's probably my favorite contemporary Western author. So there's a recommendation for people. If you're looking for something to get into, James Reasoner does great work. So, Well, let me uh, recommend the novels of Ed Gorman as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. Great stuff. Great stuff. What are we talking about today again? I forget. Hold on. I'll tell you what. People, <laughs> Derek and I are going to take a break reassess and we'll come back and actually start talking about the subject of this podcast. So hang on folks. <laughs> Prepare for a spine tingling nerve shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to monster kid radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio.
Okay, folks, we're going to be covering two of William Castle's early career westerns this episode. Uh, it's clearly taken us a while to get to it, but prom- we promise, we promise it's coming. Uh, we're going to start with the first one. We're going to try to go chronologically. So we're going to start with uh, the first that's in this set. And for those that would like to play along at home, uh, this William Castle western set, there are eight of them, all for a nice cheap price. What did you pay I paid less than $15. How about you, Derek? Yeah, same here. I just pulled it up on Amazon right now. 12 bucks. Yeah, 12 bucks. Yeah. So um, you get – now, there are no extras, of course, and I wouldn't expect any. I mean, it's first of all, it's it's Mill Creek, but also they're B-Westerns, and, and, it, and, it, and there's not a lot of people out there that someone's going to be willing to pay to actually sit down and talk <laughs> about – a lot of these very low-budget Westerns from this period of time. But that doesn't mean they're not worth talking about and not worth actually sitting down to see. The name of the set is The Fastest Guns of the West. And uh, that's, I think, do you, don't you think that it may have been a mistake to not slap William Castle's name on the spine? Yeah, they have it on the front of the case across the top, the William Castle Western collection, mm-hmm. which is still a little misleading because they're from, I believe, different studios. The first one I don't think was Columbia, was it? Uh, um, and, and William Castle did a lot more than just these eight Westerns. He worked on a handful of other Westerns as well. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, putting William Castle's name on the spine, I think, would have sold a few more units, maybe moved a few more copies into the hands of people who care about William Castle. But yeah, I don't it's know. It's a mystery. When I first started trying to look back at William Castle's early career several years ago, what I discovered is that uh, he had actually made a number of uh, programmers and mystery series that I'm a big fan of. You mentioned The Fat Man, but he actually made a couple of uh, the films in the Crime Doctor series that I'm a big fan of. That's another Columbia murder mystery series. Oh, okay. I'll check those out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really should. Uh, T- Turner Classic Movies occasionally will show them, and uh, I've enjoyed all of the ones that I've seen. And he directed, I want to say, two or three of them. Well, we I'm have seeing, the magic internets. Hold yeah, on. I'm seeing three with the three. I have his filmography here. Excuse me. Okay. And I, and I do see three that have the word Crime Doctor in the title, so I would assume we'll see Crime Doctor's Warning, Crime Doctor's Manhunt, and Crime Doctor's Gamble. Yeah, and um, Just Before Dawn is another crime doctor film he made as well. So I'm also looking at the filmography and it looks like he did some films in the Whistler series, which I'm not, I mean, I'm familiar with, I've not seen them, but I've had them recommended to me to check out these Whistler films. So interesting. Well, I know I'm a fan of the, uh, the old radio show that those are taken from, but I've not seen, I don't think I've seen any of the Whistler films like voice, the Whistler, which he made her the first one just called the Whistler. But well, it's got Richard Dix as the lead, so I mean that could yeah. be cool, huh? Which you know will bring me to the bring me to the table every time. Sure. But what we're talking about tonight is uh, his first western, uh, made in 1943. One of his first films. Uh, yes, I think was it was it his second feature? I believe I think, so. Yeah, yeah. Klondike Kate was his second feature film. Uh, he was uh, very unhappy with his first one, Chance of a Lifetime. And uh, I went back. Have you ever read his autobiography? I've got it. It was given to me for Christmas, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Well, you know, as with the movies that I own, I've got a huge to watch <laughs> list and a huge to read pile. So, yes, I believe me, I understand. I read it 
like 15 or 15 or more years ago. And last night I sat down and uh, ran through it again, trying to see if he ever made any specific comments about the two films we're covering today. And yeah. nothing. Oh. Not a word, which is a little disappointing, but it did remind me how much fun that book is. It's a really entertaining read. If you've never read, is it called Step Right Up? I believe so. Yeah. It's it's worth your time because it's a very fun read and it's got a lot of good stories in it. But <laughs> Klondike Kate, 1943, um, interesting movie because it's based on a real person. But, yeah. I saw that, and you made a comment to me but when we were talking about this and just confirming that her story's a lot more interesting than the movie made it out to be. <laughs> yes. To say, uh, you know, we have a tendency to say, tendency to say the, the story got Hollywoodized, and boy, did it ever. Yeah, and, you know, in this era of Hollywood, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, a lot of times, you know, they, they would say based on a story by, but... Really, they they go through so many uh, studio hands by the time they get to the writer themselves. And it's just they might share a title and a couple of character names. And I mean, that even happens today. But just I feel like in the 30s and 40s, a lot of times it just it happened a lot. Well, the thing about the actual person this is based on, her name was Kathleen Rockwell. And Mm -hmm. she was a vaudeville singer and dancer who made her name and fortune on the, the saloon stages of the Yukon in Canada. Now, I'm a huge fan of Canadian Mountie stories, you know, because that's just a subset of Westerns, let's be honest. But it has the chance of there being snow. As long as I don't have to shovel it, I'm, I'm happy with snow. So I like that. But the <laughs> so this whole story is supposed to take place in the Klondike. And uh, as you might expect from that title, Klondike Kate got her fame being a stage performer in a very rough and tumble section of the world. Got to admire her for that, but also it brings up the one thing that, like we say, this is a Hollywood movie. There are moments in this movie, even though they're fictionalizing the living hell out of it, where it's very easy to go, oh, I bet you I know what that was really supposed to be. (laughs) And my favorite of those is uh, before we're even introduced to Klondike Kate, the the character in the story, we are in this Canadian frontier town called Totem Pole. uh, And we have this we have this train load of women coming into town who are stage performers. We're told that they're stage performers being brought in by one saloon owner, and we have another saloon owner who plans to steal them out from under him and hire them for his own place. Okay, look, I've seen Deadwood. I know what these girls were really brought into town for. Exactly. (laughs) I, I I turned to my girlfriend and said, so we're not supposed to think they're prostitutes, right? Yeah. And the thing is, hey, I'm sure there were vaudeville and stage actresses who did quite well in these places, but I think they were also prostitutes. Right. Yeah. So they're playing that word game that Hollywood films of this period had to play. They're pretending that we're going to believe. And if you were a young kid watching this film, it would just, it would blow right past you. It wouldn't even enter your mind that these were, prostitutes because it's not something that occurs to a kid but to an adult there's a lot of coding in the dialogue and in the way things are done to let you know okay yeah they're both of these things yeah 
first of all, this film has a great cast, and uh, we could we could talk about the, the the actual historical character this is based on. And, and uh, well, for a moment, you know why this film got made was that by the her her fame, uh, the actual Klondike Kate's fame happened. Well, she arrived in Dawson up in Canada in uh, about 1900, and it was over the next several years that she became famous there for her stage work and kind of, you know, made a, made a fortune, was doing well enough. She had a, a, a trademark flame dance, which was a really racy number where she wore a red sequin dress, kind of a, an illusion of flames. And so she was a star. Sometimes she was earning more than $750 a night. And this is in the early 1900s. That's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. So knowing right off the bat that I'd much rather see a realistic movie about this woman than the film we end up with, what we end up with is still a pretty fun movie if you like B-Westerns. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie's got, and again, my experience with Westerns, like we talked about earlier, didn't really kick in until after I graduated high school. Um, But this movie's got, what I would consider a lot of the earmarks of the B movie Westerns of the period, you know, the, the big saloon fights and, you know, the, the, the drunk judge and, and just all these things that I call them tropes or stereotypes. I mean, they're all in here. Yeah. And one of the things that it would be very possible because most of this movie is set bound. I mean, there's only a couple of scenes at the beginning that seem to take place outside. The rest mm-hmm. of the movie is shot in interiors so it's very easy to fake up whatever place they wanted to call this. Uh, I found it strange. As soon as I saw who was playing the lead character and Savage, I didn't think anything about it until I found out that that was actually this is actually her first leading role. And the reason she got the part was that um, the actual Klondike Kate asked for her. She re- she picked her to play her in this film. Oh wow! Yeah. Because the reason this film got made to a large degree was that uh, in the the, uh, late 30s and early 40s, the actual person this film is based on was actually in Hollywood working with training uh, dancers and things of that nature for the movies. And so her story, while generally pretty well known at the time anyway, she actually came in contact with a lot of people who worked in Hollywood. They knew her. And so they purchased the rights to her story and made this film. And she had some input, including picking Ann Savage to play herself. That's really cool. I, I didn't know that. I, I know that like Wyatt Earp consulted on some Westerns because he mm-hmm. managed to not get shot in the street somewhere and was able to work in Hollywood a little bit. But I didn't know that about Klondike. That's really cool. The, uh, Real casting coup for me, though, and you and I talked about this briefly a while back, the great Glenda Farrell. I love her. She's amazing. (laughs) How could you not love Glenda Farrell? She's so great. And she's I'm still still trying to work my way. Thank you, Turner Classic Movies. Work my (laughs) way through all of the movies she made in the 30s and 40s. Man, she was busy, but she was good and Listeners, if you have not seen any of the Torchy Blaine films that she's in, yes. there are a couple that she's yes. not the lead, but there's a good run of Torchy Blaine movies. She is just fantastic. I mean, you get a, you get some of this Torchy Blaine-like character in um, Mystery of the Wax Museum, where she's also really, really good. But check out the Torchy Blaine films, uh, especially the earlier ones in the run, are just fantastic. She's great. The, the Man... People, people, we're not kidding about the Torchy Blaine film. Start with the first one called called Smart Blonde. 
and you'll be hooked. Yeah, Smart Wand and Flyaway Baby is also really good. But mm-hmm. it, you kind of don't need to see them in order, I don't think. I mean, I think Not her really. relationship with her boyfriend kind of evolves a little bit, but you're fine. If you come in late or you skip one because TCM didn't play it that month, you're fine. <laughs> but TCM does seem to run them like once a year, maybe every six months or so. Well, there's which, a really good um, DVD set that Warner Archives put out. You can get the whole run of them. So. Nice. Yeah, I, I don't have that set, but it does drive my wife, Brenda, kind of crazy because <laughs> whenever they're on TCM, I make sure to record them on the DVR and then <laughs> I space them out over a few months. So they're always sitting there. She's like, our DVR is almost full. Can I delete this? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, also in the 30s, um, Linda Farrell made a bunch of films with Joan Blondell and mm-hmm. – Anytime you see the two of them in a movie, watch it because I guarantee you it's going to have what's going to have good dialogue. The chemistry between those two ladies was amazing. They just made a they they made a great team on screen. And it's just it's just a real joy. Havana Widows is a good example. It's just a lot of them. Man, I'm getting goosebumps right now, Rod. And and I know we'll probably talk about this at the end as well. And I'm going to say it offline for a lot, uh, a lot of times. But. This is awesome. <laughs> no, I, I, earlier I said Monster Kid Radio is my show. I do what I want. But I don't get to talk about this stuff on Monster Kid Radio, man. So this is great. <laughs> man, I'm just – Joan Blondell is amazing and, and Glenda Farrell and her together. They're back and forth. Uh-huh. They're chemistry. And Glenda Farrell is, is not your typical woman character or actress of this period. I mean she gets – a lot of good lines and delivers them even better and, and than they're written. And, and this is just awesome. I, I, I seriously goosebumps, man. This is, I'm having a blast. Anyway. Good. good. <laughs> I might need a moment before we continue, but no, we're, okay. We're good. We're good. <laughs> well, the moment that I found out that Glenda Farrell was in one of these movies, I was, I was over the moon because at least that I knew, Hey, at least, there's one excellent performance in this film, and luckily, Anne Savage is also great. Have you ever seen one of the one of the nastier things she was ever in? Did you ever see Detour, the classic film noir? Oh yeah, man, that's <laughs> See, that's another area that I didn't come to until much later in my uh, filmmaking, I guess, or filmmaking film watching career is the film noir. Now, what I've seen, I've loved, and I'm still exploring the film noir genre. And she was, mm. yeah. Detour is good. Good stuff. Good stuff. I'm also, strangely enough. <laughs> say what? What are we talking about again today? <laughs> Everything. Everything. Pretty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom Neal is the lead, or lead male, I should say, really. Anne Savage and Glenda Farrell are the most interesting characters on screen. But mm-hmm. Tom Neal plays a character named Jefferson Braddock, and he's the guy who uh, runs. Well, maybe I should explain just the outline of the plot. Anne Savage plays Kathleen O'Day is a woman who has inherited from her very absent father a saloon in this Canadian town of Totem Pole. She goes up there to take possession of it, only to find that the person that her father left in control of the place has sold it to this Jefferson Braddock, played by Tom Neal. Uh, she enlists the aid of the only lawyer in town to try to stake her claim to the saloon and take it over, that does not go well. <laughs> she kind of takes it in stride and starts making plans to try to find a way to either get the place for herself or, shall we say, put Jefferson Braddock in a position where they're 
both co-owners through marriage. Maybe it gets a little weird. Yeah. And, uh, that's the broad outline of things with one extra little thing thrown in, which is Jefferson Braddock is the person who kind of steals the dancing girls that came into town at the invitation of another fellow. Tell me you uh, made air quotes when you said dancing girls. <laughs> yes, 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 I did. Dancing girls slash prostitutes. Uh, because, I mean, they make a big deal out of the fact that these women, it's like paint your wagon where the, the women show up and the entire town goes insane because there are no women. Right, which was pretty typical in a lot of these old West towns. You know, they're mining towns or whatever, and, you know, the men went and did it, and maybe they left their families at home or they were single or whatever. So, yeah, bringing in the women. A quick way event, to make money. Oh, oh, that too. <laughs> well, oh, do you know the – here, a little more reality. The funniest thing about how the real Klondike Kate got into the Yukon – one thing that uh, they don't talk about in the movies very often about, uh, you know, Canadian Mounties and the, the gold rush in the Yukon is that after a certain point, the Canadian Mounties and the, the Canadian government made it difficult for people to come into the country because there were just too many people rushing in to try to strike it rich. So first few times that uh, the actual historical character of Kate tried to get into Canada, she got turned away along with a lot of other people. So, uh, she snuck into Canada disguised as a man. Well then. <laughs> so, hey. I suspect that to be more historically accurate, there would be some, uh, quote-unquote, not-really-men in the town of Totem Pole who are just glad that maybe now the guys wouldn't be looking at them as possibly a little feminine. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, what we have is a... Uh, now, we should say this is a B-Western, but it did seem to have a bit more of a budget than average for a lot of the films of this type. Oh, it's just that there are a lot more extras and a lot more characters than most B-Westerns would normally have. They packed a lot into this, and especially the, the bar fight at the you know near the end of the film. Yeah. There are yeah. so many people swinging fists and chairs here, and, and I did not expect to see that many people on screen at once in a movie like this. And it gets kind of exciting at that point. I oh, honestly yeah. didn't know which way the plot was going to go because what we have is the uh, the other saloon owner who got who got who got his women stolen from him, figuring out a way to try to not just get the women back, but to also take over the saloon that Braddock runs. Now I love I love the name of the character. Uh, his name was Sometimes Smith. It was just a. a, a uh, I don't think we ever find out what his actual real first name is, but everybody calls him Sometime. <laughs> I love it though. I mean, it's it's perfect. <laughs> oh, did you recognize the guy who plays him? Oh, I feel like I should. Um, well, kinda. Yeah. You should recognize his name for a weird reason. He's Sheldon Leonard, and what he's most famous for. I mean, he he made a lot of movies as an actor. But he really made his money in Hollywood as a producer okay. of a lot of television shows. I Spy, Andy Griffith Show, Gomer Pyle, wow. uh, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Make Room for Daddy. He was the executive producer on all those shows and a lot more. That's how he made his money in the entertainment industry. He directed a bunch of television and he even wrote some stuff. He was in like over a hundred movies and television shows, but 
Sheldon Leonard's name was a name I knew just because anytime I would watch Dick Van Dyke, there he is. He's the executive producer. Right on. Well, that's cool. This being a B-Western, it's got a short run time. All of these B-Westerns run about an hour, maybe an hour and ten minutes at most. And I think this one is about an hour and three minutes. It's pretty short. Um, it, it's long enough to be considered a feature, or it would have been long enough to be considered a feature uh, yeah. at a video store. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's pretty uh, pretty tight. Yeah, 64 minutes. And I mentioned earlier, so I said something about whether or not this was produced by Columbia. It was Columbia as well that put this one out, so I was wrong there. But yeah, it's like an hour four, real short. I feel like the story they were trying to tell did kind of butt up against the restrictions of the time limit. There's a yeah. lot that happens here, and it almost feels like there are two stories that are being told. It could have been done either in chapters or just expanded and made even longer. You know, the stuff with her not getting the bar and then uh, the stuff between him, uh, between the two rival bar owners or, or dance hall owners. Um, I feel like those are two separate things that could have been expanded or, or maybe, I don't know. Well, yeah, but the thing that bridges the two of them or should have bridged them better is the the very cool relationship that starts to happen between Anne Savage's character as Kathleen and Glenda Farrell's character as Molly, because they really end up bonding and working together to try to get her to get Kathleen in a position where she can uh, take over the saloon. Yeah. And it seems like if they had, I don't know if they'd shrunk down the rivalry between the two saloon owners just a little and spend a little bit more time on those two because it's Glenda Farrell and she's given it a hundred percent and she and Ann Savage actually seem to be working well together. I would have loved to have seen more of that relationship. There's some good stuff in the movie between the two of them, but because there is just that little bit, I want more of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I understand why, I, I guess, I mean, I suppose I can understand why uh, Columbia and Hollywood and the producers would say would, position the story as it was so that we could have the big climax with the bar fight and all that. I get that. Um, plus it's very early in William Castle's career. So I don't know how many chances he was able to take or changes he was able to make. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, now as this being a William Castle film, his second feature film, this is a film where for the first few years where he was directing, this is a man learning how to do what he's doing. And so, to a large degree, he benefited from being in a position where he had a lot of people around him, a lot of the technicians that he was working with, and a lot of the people there on the set and there on the lot that he could talk to and learn, okay, what's the best way to set up this kind of shot? And this is the kind of stuff he'd already been apprenticing about for about three years before he ever did this anyway. So, what you're seeing here is a man who's been chomping at the bit to do this kind of stuff for years and is finally starting to get his chances. And so I don't see any, any glimmers of like uh, trying to step too far outside the box to do something a little uh, daring or odd, but there is a dynamism to most of the way the film is shot. That's pretty good. You can see he's hemmed in because he's like I say, mostly got to shoot this on sets. So mm-hmm. These are these are uh, standard sets there. Uh, I do. I, I will say this. I don't know if he had any control over um, the structure of that dance hall, but I do like the uh, the platform beside the stage where 
the uh, where Jefferson Braddock and whoever he's wanting to confab with seat. You know, they sit up there at a table. I, I, I did like the way that was designed. Oh, and yeah. uh, like I say, I don't know if Castle had any say over the design of the sets, but it is a cool look. And it does make the the whole let's let's just say there's a flatness to a saloon set that kind of can creep in, and you start to see it, especially in a lot of series westerns. Once you get to the '60s on television, this one's pretty cool because it's not laid out in a way that makes it seem like it would be easy to sh- you know we set it up this way so it's easy to shoot certain shots that we're going to get every time it seems like it's set up in a way to create a space like you would for a saloon with a with a stage at the end of it and it just it has a nice look to it i've not actually seen a design like that in a film of this type especially a low budget one like this Lionel Banks was the art director and did a lot of the film sets. And, uh, I mean, he was an Oscar winner. I mean, he, he did a lot. Really? Um, oh, yeah. He did um, His Girl Friday, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, a bunch of films. <laughs> well, only that just speaks to what I was saying, yeah. which is, you know, these are technicians who know their job. They're, you know, mm-hmm. they're part of that machine and they know that they know what they're doing and they're just bringing that competence to even a film that I'm sure was, you know, who, I don't know what the budget was, but like I say, this is clearly a B Western. They're not spending a lot of money on this. Right. Uh, to speak of the technicians, he was working with the cinematographer in this, uh, John Dumar, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. He'd been a cinematographer in Hollywood since 1917. So well, he knew his way around a camera. And I think by surrounding yourself with masters of their craft, you can't help but put, I mean, an enjoyable product out. And I think Klondike Kate's definitely enjoyable. And and I have a few issues here and there, but, you know, William Castle's learning from the best here at the time. He's got Lionel Banks. He's got the cinematographer. He's got fantastic actresses working with him. You know, you just kind of, I imagine he was just sucking that up and just taking those experiences in and, letting it kind of bubble around inside him until he was ready to start making the movies that he considered his movies, you know? Well, um, I mean, I meant to mention, by the way, when we were talking about the fact that, uh, Tom Neal is uh, playing Braddock in this, mm-hmm. um, he and Ann Savage, they were both in detour just two years later. And you know, that, that was a very, that was a low budget film. That was a, uh, gosh, I can't remember which small studio that was. That wasn't even a Columbia film. That was, that was very small. But I have to wonder, uh, Tom Neal is one of those guys who he's, he, okay. Tom Neal's a good looking guy. Okay. Tom Neal's handsome. Uh, in this film, most especially they're, they're doing him upright. He's got the little, he's got the little mustache. Uh, he's twirling a gun. He's a handsome fella. And if you've ever seen detour folks, you realize in that movie, he's a guy who looks run down, who's just depressed and who's honestly at, at his wits end a lot of the time about the, the severely bad position life has placed him in. And that was just two years after this. Makes me want to pay more attention to whatever Tom Neal did in his career because just in those two movies alone, I see him turning in solid performances. I'm not going to say he's like a massive standout in this film anyway, but he's solid and he's good. The problem is he's next to Glenda Farrell <laughs> And he's next to Ann Savage, and they tend to draw my eye. Yeah, just the force of their personalities alone. Mm-hmm. Yes. They absorb the attention and, and draw it from everybody else. So it's, I mean, Tom Neal's good, and you know, we keep talking about Detour. That 
It, it was a Poverty Row film, uh, but yeah. Criterion's putting it out on Blu-ray next month. Really? 4K restoration. I cannot wow. wait. Nice. Very good. The film, the film deserves it. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's great, but it, it, the film kind of lives with Glenda Farrell and Ann Savage. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, you know, for, for those of us of the modern era, it's fun to pay attention to the coding within the film. At least that's one of the things I get out of it. The stuff within the film that's telling the adults in the audience what is kind of really going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a, a family a family film because anybody in the family can watch it and get different things out of it. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> one of my favorite. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just I, I think I may adopt that as a, as kind of a <laughs> phrase. That's a good way to put it. I like it. One of my favorite things about this movie, and you see this especially in like the TV westerns, you know, Gunsmoke and Rivalman and things like that, and, and a lot of the B movie western films. Historical accuracy is not very high on the list of concerns. No. Um, d- don't go looking to movies like this to see what the West was really like or the Yukon was really like or anything like that. But one thing that I really appreciated about this movie is Klondike Kate's portrayal of sidewalks uh, in the city, in the small town of Totempole. Yeah. It's not uh, slats of wood. Uh, it's it's basically a beam over some water that you have to walk up and down. There's not a lot of room to get around. And I loved that sequence, and I love that they did that. It's it's very much in keeping with, uh, you're right, uh, some historical accuracy on that part. That's true. I actually made Brenda come in and, and look at that scene. It's like, look at this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, they're, they're walking. It's like, no, that's not on a board. It's, it's, it's they're walking on the sidewalk. And I'm like, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure she was completely unimpressed. She she is used to me getting excited about uh, odd things about films sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's that's you and me both, buddy. So, <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, Klondike Kate, an interesting kind of first step into this into this grouping of westerns directed by William Castle. Uh, not a great film. But one that I am happy that I've seen, my, primarily, I have to admit, because of the performers. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I think it's a good movie. I'm glad I watched it. I'm sure I'm going to watch it again sometime. And it's barely over an hour. So yeah. it wasn't a huge time commitment. And you know, we already talked about how cheap the set is. So it's not a huge money commitment either to get your hands on it. I'd recommend people see it just to kind of see some of William Castle's earlier steps. It does have the big saloon fight at the end that... It's just fun. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you've got that going for it, too. It's fun to see these things. Oh, yeah. safe. We brought her here so that you would come. I will give you four days to show me your word has been kept. If you cannot, the Apaches and the Comanches will make war on the whites. This time to the finish. What if they refuse our proposal? If it's war, we're in a nice spot to end it quick. Now in a few minutes, Bill. 
I have learned all of your customs. This is the way of my people. There is no cause for war with the Americans. They did not break their pledge to the Apaches. You have gone far enough. You will suffer three deaths, so that no more would you interfere between red man and red man in their war against the whites. Next up chronologically on this DVD set of William Castle Westerns is 1953's Conquest of Cochise. Um, This is fully a decade later, and I think it's possible to see the growth of Castle as a director. And I don't just mean because this film is in Technicolor. What did you think of this one overall, Derek? So I was really surprised. I, I guess I just assumed all the movies on this set were going to be black and white. So I started it up and was like, oh, it's color. Awesome. Um, I did like this movie more than Klondike Kate. But uh, the 1980s ruined Robert Stack for me. <laughs> I I know. And it's not his fault. And I know he's a good actor. And he, he is a good actor. A great right, career yeah. on film and television. And I know this. But sometimes he says something that makes me think he needs to be wearing a trench coat and asking me to help him solve a mystery. <laughs> there's just there's just something there. And as a kid growing up, that was my first first exposure to Robert Stack. Well, was, tell me see, something. Been, tell me something. Yeah. Do you have the same problem trying to watch Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. I kept hoping, expecting something to happen. No. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a problem. I understand. You know, heck, I even had an issue with Star Trek Enterprise a little bit. Kept expecting Dean Stockwell to show up and tell Captain Archer they're there to fix something for Ziggy. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the 80s kind of ruined Stack for me. That said, I thought Robert Stack was really good in this. Yeah. Uh, as long as I could keep the Unsolved Mysteries theme out of my head while I was watching it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did find myself liking this film. And, and there's something in this movie that I think is one of the reasons why sometimes I tend to gravitate more toward the spaghetti Western side of things and the American Western side of things is that at least in my experience so far, and I haven't watched all of them. So I don't see a lot of native American portrayals in spaghetti Westerns. I knew, I know there are some, there, yeah, there are some, but usually spaghetti Westerns are usually about, you know, a couple of uh, Americans or maybe, you know, well, I guess there are Americans, you know, Klansmen or something, you know, Whereas the American Westerns, a lot of times, especially in this era, they have the Indians, the Native Americans, portrayed by white guys in dark makeup. Um, fiction Indians, we were talking. Fictional Indians. <laughs> fictional Indians. Uh, and that's true of this film, of course. No, Spaghetti Westerns have their own issues when it comes to like the portrayal of women sometimes. But, you know, the American Westerns, they have that. And I, I struggle a little bit with it because I know it wasn't necessarily Hollywood's best day when it comes to diversity. <laughs> <laughs> and portraying yeah. people that were not white men. And it's unfortunate, but it is part of the Hollywood history. So I, I, you, you can't ignore it either. I mean, it's, it's not being respectful of the history if you're not paying attention to that. So I did struggle with that a little bit. But John Hodiak's voice, man, I could listen to that guy all day. Yes. Now, uh, John Hodiak is the actor who plays Cochise in this film. And uh, I, I was a little curious. It The movie... I can see how this might be a problem for some viewers who are expecting a more 
linear storyline, and, and, and by linear, I'm, I'm using the wrong word. The film from the title, you're going to expect uh, maybe Cochise is going to be the main character, but for the first chunk of the movie, he's a secondary character. And then, almost at the the one third mark of the running time, he the, the film shifts, and he and Robert Stack's character, who has been the main focus for the first chunk of the movie, becomes a secondary character who's only talked about until the very end where he comes back in and Cochise does take center stage. And you're right. John Hodiak is very good in the role. He is a, first of all, he's physically impressive. And I have to admit, and I had not uh, paid much attention to this fellow before in my life until I saw him in this, but he's very good. And yeah, he's a white guy from Pittsburgh playing an Indian. It's true. (laughs) He's got a little bit of ethnic look to him. I think his parents were not American or something. I don't know much about the guy, but yeah, he's a white guy from Pittsburgh. <laughs> he was in a lot of great movies, and uh, now that I, when I looked over his his list of credits, I realized, wow, I've seen him in a lot of movies. I've seen Battleground, I've seen Lifeboat, I've seen you know quite 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 a few of his movies. But it's it, this is the first time where he's been center stage in a way where the movie kind of forced me to pay attention to him. In other words, he's the he's the title character. Yeah. Who doesn't really get to shine, like you said, until about halfway through when the, the shift of the story seems to, to change to focus on what's going on with him and his tribe. And I guess the Comanche tribes who kind of sort of are neighbors. Yeah. Now, let's 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 make sure everybody knows. Um, once again, historical accuracy. That's a concept <laughs> you need to write down on a piece of paper, wad up into a ball and toss it outside of the room while you're watching this movie. Because... Almost none of this is historically accurate. Yes, there is a tribe known as the Apache. Yes, there was a tribe known as the Comanche. Yes, uh, American cavalry units, cavalry units, they did exist. Other than that. And yes, there was a real place called Mexico. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, boy. But I'm not sure that any other detail other than how the film starts off in 1853 with the Gadsden Purchase. Uh, I think they even fictionalized the details of that quite a bit. <laughs> it oh, doesn't I'm matter. Sure. <laughs> but the uh, the film itself, remember, we're, we're here to be entertained, and that's what this film is doing. And it's, you know, the tagline of the original poster was, history comes alive. No, not, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not but, so much. It will entertain you. If you yeah. want to see a, a, a very well-produced, colorful, and interesting Western, this isn't a bad choice for this kind of picture from 1953. And here's a surprise. I don't know if, I don't know if this jumped up into your mind as well, and, but I was really shocked at the nuance and the fine-line detail going into the character interactions. This is not a movie that this is this is this is a little bit better scripted than your average B Western would have been just 10 years earlier, because character motivations and character, um, let's say, arcs are are complicated in this. They are not exactly how you think they're going to turn out as they start to unravel in the story. I thought that was pretty cool, actually, about this this film there. My expectations were constantly not being met, and that was yeah. a good thing. 
this, this could have easily turned into another low-budget Western from the 40s or 50s or whatever. But there are things happening here, some of the moving parts. Uh, there are some chances being taken here with the storytelling. Even from the very beginning with who gets killed on screen, I did not expect that to be that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how spoiler you want to get here. Well, but I mean, it's the opening scene. Go ahead, because I want to talk about a woman the, gets killed. Very... A woman gets killed. Yeah. And I didn't expect that at all. And it's just an back. arrow. Yeah. Just boom. And we're off and running. I didn't expect that in this movie. No, I, I didn't, didn't expect that. Yeah. No, I just like what? And yeah, this movie continues to do things that kind of twist the expectations that I had coming in. I was entertained by this one quite a bit. Despite my little rant about Unsolved Mysteries earlier, I really enjoyed <laughs> this movie. Well, one of the neater things about it is, like I say, it kind of sub it subverts my expectations a number of times. And uh, I don't know that – let's put it this way. Uh, there's a there's, – from the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, you're pretty sure you can, you can figure out what the romantic entanglement of the film is going to be. But the movie completely goes in a different direction. And in what I consider to be a much more interesting and satisfying direction with the characters we're talking about. Because what you have is a kind of lopsided love triangle that really is not a love triangle because one of the points on that triangle is trying, but nobody else is interested. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be Robert Stack. Let's be honest. Yeah. Robert Stack is our major Burke. He's our the leader of the cavalry, but he's also, you know, a fan of the ladies. And yep. I mean, the first time we see him in the film, he's out in the hall necking while his superiors are working out a deal for the purchase. It's great. <laughs> and, and from that, what you think is going to happen is, you know, he's, he takes his troops out to this, uh, to this place and meets uh, Joy Page's character, Consuela de Cordova, and immediately is struck by her as you would be. And what you think it, the, the, the arc of his character is going to be is that by trying to win her love, he'll become less of a playboy jerk. And that's what you're going to see. But the movie does not do that. Did you, uh, Joy Page, the actress, were you aware of having seen her in anything else before? No, I was saying Joy Page, fantastic. And wasn't she in Casablanca? Didn't she have a small role there? Yes, she did. Uh, when that was pointed out to me, I was really impressed because, yeah, it's a standout moment. She's the uh, the character who is about to have to uh, sleep with Claude Rain's character to get her and her boyfriend out of Casablanca. And uh, Rick, Humphrey Bogart's character, intercedes. But I'd seen her in a couple of other things as well and just not realized that I should have been paying attention <laughs> because she's very pretty. She's pretty, but she's also, you know, I shouldn't say but because they're not exclusive. She's pretty and she's good. Uh, yeah. she, she's a very talented actress. And I do like the back and forth between her and Robert Stack in this film. And it's not the first time they worked together. So maybe that's why the chemistry worked for me. Because yeah. they were also in Bullfighter and the Lady together a couple of years prior. And just there's, there's a back and forth there, especially when they're talking about like the champagne bottle and, and the treaty that they set up. Uh, I. I just loved that moment, and a big part of it's because she's carrying that scene. Yeah, and the and the way it's shot, and this is something where I'm, or I think you can see some some growth and some some um, some William Castle style kind of coming to the fore because that entire sequence you're talking about, where Stack has arranged for uh, Consuela to be home alone, 
and he's got a bottle of champagne. This is, you know, he's about to be the player, and he's going to get get next to this lady finally. And he's going to experience some real joy here in a minute. Oh, that was bad. I know. That was bad. That was bad. That's his, that's his goal, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I love the way the scene plays out because it uh, it subverts expectations again because – the bottle of champagne turns out to be flat, which kind of embarrasses him and puts a smile on her face. But one of the neat things that you can see about way this shot, well, the various shots within this scene and the way the whole scene is directed is that uh, Joy's character is the center of the entire thing, as it should be, because the way sure. the scene is written, she's the reason the scene exists. But the way he's setting up his shots as a director is to put the camera in a position to always follow her reactions to whatever Stack is doing, to the point that Stack is most of the scene, even when he's having to realize that he should be that he should be embarrassed about the flat champagne bottle, the camera is positioned in these two shots so that we're paying attention to her reactions more than what he's doing. And that that is a choice made by a director to emphasize the the character he thinks the scene is more about and then of course as the story plays out yes because she is a much more important part of this story than the beginning of the movie would lead us to believe mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent agreement here man uh, she is the character whose story that we should be following from the beginning even though we're kind of being teased about it it's just i, I think there's some real masterful storytelling happening here yeah, it's it's carefully and smartly done to well, it's almost at times it feels like a cinema sleight of hand because it's it gets you paying attention to okay, we have this conflict going on. There are kind of three sides. There are the two different Indian tribes and uh, the the uh, the U.S. Army, and we have a fourth side, which are the Mexican nationals who are now because of the Gadsden Purchase on the wrong side of the the national line. They are now in what is considered the United States instead of in Mexican territory. So there are all these conflicting things going on. And the neat thing about that is, is I was looking back on the film and realizing none of this is ever confusing. And that's the fact that that, that just goes to a, a well-delineated script. We're not confusing people. We're laying a bunch of information in front of you and all of these are moving parts, but they never move in a way that confuses you about how they react or interrelate to the others. So once things start to happen and we have that broad section in the middle where the main character, what we thought was going to be the main character, Robert Stack's character, isn't even around, now you understand, okay, that's why the title of the film has Cochise in it. Yeah. That's why we've we've been very carefully positioned throughout a certain throughout the, the beginning of the film to pay attention to Joy Joy's character to the to uh, this this fine this fine Mexican woman who's part of a, a wealthy family. Now we see where things are starting to go. But I've seen a lot of these kind of movies, Derek. I, I really have. <laughs> I still really didn't know where this thing was going to go, and we're talking like. 40 minutes in. This movie is 70 minutes long, an hour and 10 minutes. At the 40-minute mark, we, we we had stopped to get something to drink. Or for some reason, I can't remember what it was. And I looked around and went, you know, I honestly don't know which way this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I had that same um, 
reaction to the film. Uh, I did watch this, uh, was it yesterday morning while my wife was at work? That Whenever whenever I watched it, just recently, uh, I, I kind of expected it to be another kind of B-movie Western, you know. But as soon as that opening bit happens with the woman getting shot in the back with an arrow, I was like, wow, okay, this is something to pay attention to. And we get to what would be the, I guess, concluding chapter of Robert Stack being the supposed main focus. And the movie just kind of spins off in this other direction. Uh, you'll suffer three deaths scene. Yeah, or, or sequence of, of events there. I mean, that was which was amazing. Uh, it was fantastic, and I feel like I've used that word a lot in this episode. <laughs> I apologize, but it, it really was. And I again, I didn't expect it to be the way that it was. We saw blood on screen. Yeah, I didn't expect that. So many times in these westerns, especially of this era, somebody gets shot, and you see them clutch their chest where they got shot, and then fall forward, so you don't have to worry about seeing the effect of the gunshot. You know, you don't yeah. see it, but in this one, Coach he's gets cut up, and wow, on screen, I, I, yeah, I didn't expect that either. It's a, it's a little out of the ordinary for a film of this period, of course, but it's it's us also that scene doesn't end the way I thought it would because once they start that, I think, well, we know we're you know we've got to carry this through. Once again, this movie, in big ways and small, does not go in the direction that. I expected it to again and again. And that's really surprising because like I say, I've seen a lot of these. I've seen enough of these to feel embarrassed about the fact that I'm not older than I am. (laughs) I, you know, that's, that's me, man. That's why you and I get to get along so well. I'm telling you, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I think you're just a little older than I am, but I mean, we're, we're still whippersnappers compared to the people that saw these when they first came out in the theater, you know? Oh yeah. And that was not a subtle making fun of you for being older or anything. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? But no, I, I agree with you. I think uh, this one really did kind of change some of the tropes or the stereotypes. We talked about that a little bit with uh, Klondike Kate, how you did have some of the traditional moments from a B-Western. This one yeah. didn't really. I mean, Robert Stack is a player. You know, the, the first time he sees Joy Page's character, you know, he looks her up and down and you you know, you know, he's acting with his eyes what he wants to do with the rest of his body with her, you know, and, and it's, 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 a little on the creepy side now, you know, but you know, you know what's happened, but it never consummates that way and or ends that way. It's just so I'm babbling, and that typically happens when I really enjoy a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay because this one, I, like I say, this one's 10 years after the first film that we're talking about today, and therefore there's a certain level of competence that we're starting to see and confidence in Mm -hmm. Castle's direction. This is a man who's been doing this long enough to have the feeling that he knows what he's doing and to start playing with the form just a little bit. This is a man who's starting to get a feel for what he's doing and for ways in which he would like to do it himself. And of course, just a few years after this is when he would, you know, he would go out on his own and mortgage his own house and produce his first film on his own. Sure. So this is this is a man who's making sure he has the skill sets needed to put a solid film into place and on screen. And what's neat about this is you start to see, and like I say, I'm sure he was handed this script and told, go do the script, right? You're a contract director. Go make the picture. Here's your blueprint. Build the thing. But this is not as twisty, turny, and complicated and strange as the movies he would start making on his own. But you can start to see right here 
how he has a facility for putting these kinds of subversive kinds of storylines into place on screen in a coherent way. It's very easy for me to imagine this very same script being shot by a different director who just flattens a lot of some of the points in this movie. For instance, without going into the detail, the complications between the two different tribes. I can imagine a director who would want to just kind of smush that as down as hard as he can to try to present these two tribes and their disagreements as less important than this movie makes them out to be. Because the general consensus at the time was the, the white man view of them from the 1800s. They're savages, they're whatever they are. Things were starting, the, the view of them were starting, to ch- was, were starting to change at this point in American history. So this script is written from the point of view of, hey, not all these tribes were the same. Some of these people definitely had different views and saw themselves as one thing separate from not just other tribes, but from sometimes the, their own people that they were trying to lead. And this movie complicates things by having the two tribes disagree, come together, disagree again. And it's those complications within a short movie that I can see another director trying to find a way to kind of paper over, smooth down, make less complicated to shift the focus more to, you know, getting to the, the rivalries between uh, the U.S. Army and the, the, the two tribes when the two tribes are together. Mm-hmm. Castle seems to kind of, like I say, this is without having, without having him tell us about this, which is kind of frustrating. <laughs> it's almost as if he saw these complications as the things to keep him interested in the story because he, he seems to go out of his way to telegraph early on Pay attention to this female character. Yeah, this is a this is a western, but the real central player is not even the title character. It's that female character. She's the reason almost all of this starts to happen. She's the reason the second half of the story flows the way it does. Okay, um, Macabre, the the first film that uh, Castle made uh, with his own money. Mm-hmm. That is a twisty, turny. You know, he was trying to outdo. Uh, Clouseau's diabolique and trying to come up with, you know, a way to both mirror it and to kind of outdo it and surprise and shock the audience. The complications in scripts like this that might have shown him as a director that he could get away with that kind of stuff. And of course, then Clouseau's film pretty much puts it over the top when it's such a huge hit that, yeah, these twisty turny things with a shock ending or with a surprise, you know, a, a sting in the tail or a weird, uh, almost downbeat ending is something that an audience can get behind if you lead them to it well enough. Yeah. Sorry, I I, I just realized I've been babbling for two hours. No, it's fine uh, because I agree with you. Um, there is a, a more expansive style of storytelling here than what we saw ten years ago in or ten years prior in Clown Night Cape. Uh, William Castle working with producer Sam Katzman, not only on this film but on some of his other films previously would help to form Castle's approach to producing his own films. Uh, Sam Katzman, I mean, we don't even need to talk about him. I mean, I'm sure people know who that are in it know who Sam Katzman is. I mean, he's did a lot of work, but uh, with the genre stuff and low-budget stuff. So, I mean, just to have him uh, kind of passing that on to Castle and Castle then going into Macabre and, and all the other films that he did. 
it's really neat to watch this film and kind of see how it might have laid some groundwork or see where the groundwork's being laid to what Castle would become as a filmmaker on his own. Yeah, yeah. And the the thing is, it's also, I'd never seen this movie before watching it on this DVD, and I'm sure it's true of you. Yep. This is a beautiful looking print of the movie. This is a very colorful, this is, looks to be a fully restored print of this film, and it's nice. I was shocked. Uh, you know, Mill Creek puts out a lot of material that we wouldn't have otherwise. But for years, it's kind of expected that the transfers you're going to get from Mill Creek releases aren't going to be the best because they're cramming four movies into one disc, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. But with this, it looked good. I was pleasantly surprised at how sharp it was and the colors were great. Unlike Klondike Kate, this film, Conquest of Cochise, is uh, available to stream on Amazon Prime. So if you have a, if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can watch this. But I've not watched it that way, so I can't attest to whether or not it's this beautiful print that we saw off the DVD or not. So, um, yeah. But this is, uh, this is uh, a way that you can see this film. And if you're a fan of William Castle and have any interest in seeing his earlier days before he marched off on his own and started making the, the the films that we all know and love as monster kids. That's a way to, that's a way to check this out. Yeah. And we get a lot of stuff outside, which we didn't get in Klondike Cade. It's not restricted yes. to just a couple of sets. I mean, we're outside and outside of some of the most famous locations, Vasquez rocks. Yeah. There's a scene where they go by Vasquez rocks. And when I first started to see, it, I was like, no, that's not, <gasps> that's it. That's Vasquez. Where's the Gorn? Where's the Gorn? You know, so. <laughs> Isn't it terrible that we're such Star Trek geeks that science fiction infuses our brains so much that that's how we think. And those are the terms we think in. This is like, uh, look, that is where Captain Kirk beat the lizard man. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, it, it looks great though. And it's actually incorporated into a tiny bit of the story as well. I mean, yeah. The reason Vasquez rocks is there so that, you know, the cavalry can go by and there's a guy up on top and it just looks wonderful. It looks so good. And the way it ends is also, again, not expected at all and really sheds an interesting light on Cochise and makes you respect him even more. You know, mm-hmm. you know, he's not a realistic portrayal of a Native American. I mean, the, as a as a fiction, uh, fiction, Ian, uh, <laughs> I respect him. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> anyway. Listeners, this one's good. Yeah, I, I, I would say I enjoyed both of these films, but then oh, yeah. I'm I'm gonna enjoy them because I like B westerns in the first place. I enjoy them the same way that I enjoy watching, let's say, an Italian-made horror film from the 1980s. I suspect it might suck, but I'm curious enough about it that I'm willing to watch it anytime and cross my fingers. Just like, anyway, come on, it could be good. It, and even if it's not good, I like the genre enough that I will get some enjoyment out of it. I will say Conquest of Cochise is actually a solid film that I think that if you have even just a marginal interest in Westerns of that period, that you'll actually enjoy. Agreed. Rod is right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clip that and turn it into a ringtone. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Hold on a minute, folks. We'll be right back and let you know what else is coming up on our respective shows. Okay. (laughs) All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. 
We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit bmoviecookbook.com. Well, Derek, I cannot thank you enough for starting what's uh, we plan to be a series of podcasts covering these eight William Castle directed westerns. Thank you very much for doing this with me. Yeah, it's been fun. I, you know, anytime that I can watch some movies in a genre that I want to learn more about or I haven't seen before, I mean, it's just I can put in Creature from the Black Lagoon anytime and watch it over and over and over again. But to have an opportunity to kind of dive into something new. And enjoy myself. I mean, that's great. So thank you. Well, I'm just I'm a huge fan of what you do over on Monster Kid Radio, of course, and I'm, I feel very, very humbled by being able to occasionally be a guest on the show. Um, what I, I know that you sometimes plan theme months or kind of a couple of shows in a row that are kind of linked together thematically. Have you got anything like that going on over there that right now? Uh, right now? No, I think the next themed month will be May when we do another round of Lucha de Mayo ah. where we, uh, <laughs> we do luchador monster movies, which I love the luchador films and to have an opportunity to make some monsters into that. I mean, that's just, a good time. So that'll be coming up. And so far, I've got uh, Kenny, who does our Famous Monsters of Filmland segment on Monster Kid Radio, lined up to do one episode with me, as well as author Frank Schildener, who's also lined up to do one of the films with me uh, this May. So that'll be awesome. Considering doing August, excuse me, Edgar August Poe Month again, uh, partly because I want to make sure that we get you back on. <laughs> <laughs> but even if we don't do a full month of Edgar Allan Poe films, we'll still do that one. And then next, or the, I guess this December will be Dan Simber again, where we do nothing but Dan Curtis cool. type material, which was a lot of fun to do last Dan Simber, December. And I mean, the world can't have enough Dan Simber or Dan Curtis uh, conversation. <laughs> so yeah, those are the themed months I have coming up. Although I do have a run where I don't know if I'm going to do them every week in a row, but I'm going to do Toho's Bloodthirsty Trilogy. They're three vampire films. <sighs> Yeah, good stuff. Those will be coming up. I have author Oren Gray and uh, game designer Ken Heights lined up to tackle two of those films. I'm still looking for my third. Uh, But I have that coming up as well as, I guess, a mini theme or a mini run if I do them back to back to back. We'll see. Uh, But I also have some regular episodes coming up. Uh, We are doing Daimajin with uh, Anthony Wendell, uh, author and and blogger. He's going to be on to do that. Uh, Steve Turek, who's been a regular contributor to Monster Kid Radio, and I sit down to watch the 1970s TV movie Gargoyle, or Gargoyles. Uh, Great so film. Be fun. Great film. The horror host Lord Blood Raw will be joining me for Bowery Boys Meet the Monsters. <laughs> and, uh, Todd Brown <laughs> from the 
Haunted Cinema will be joining me to do um, The Vampire's Ghost. Oh, cool. So that'll be fun. And that'll kind of a bunch of other things that I want to do on Monster Kid Radio. So yeah. stay tuned You know, to monsterkidradio.net. That's where it'll all be and Facebook and all that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, with the podcast, that's what we've got going on. The other podcast we've got is The Plan 9 by 9. And I'm hoping that by the time this comes out, we're going to be ready to start rapid releasing that up, that series. Uh, for people who don't know, we are taking nine minutes of Plan 9 from outer space, watching it. Recording an episode about those nine minutes. Watching the next nine minutes. Recording another episode about those nine minutes. It just so happens we can break it down into nine installments of this <laughs> podcast, which Scott Morris and I are putting together. And again, uh, we're, I've said it everywhere that we've talked about Plan 9 by 9. The Kickstarter campaign we ran to support us doing that more than met our expectations. Uh, we, we came in a good, well, within two days we hit our goal. And we just are just humbled by all the support we've had for that. And if that does well, we have another movie that we want to do as a Movies by Minute podcast. So that, that may be coming, depending on how Plan 9 is received. So well, stay tuned I, was, for that. I was proud to be a, a backer on Kickstarter of that little project because I just think it sounds like a lot of fun. The, the Plan 9 from Outer Space is one of those weird films where – yeah, it's packed with flaws and incredibly strange, and yeah, it makes next to no sense. But man, it's mesmerizing and entertaining, <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that just makes me feel good about there being a podcast examining it nine minutes at a time. That's fantastic. And I have to tell you, as much as I love that movie, a few of the episodes that we've recorded already and, and working on right now post-production-wise, the guests that we have on have brought different perspectives to the table and brought up different things that I hadn't even considered about the film. So it'll be some new information for me and hopefully a new perspective for the listeners too. That's great, man. I can't, I can't wait. Oh man. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Partly because I'm eager to bring back. You sound, I I hear just a little bit of trepidation in your voice as if, Oh yeah, I've got to produce. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And once that's done, Scott Morris and I have talked about re, Launching, I guess, bringing back the 1951 Down Place podcast, which was huh? the Hammers Film podcast that we were doing for a while. Uh, it's been languishing. It kind of pod faded for a long time, and we miss it. So that may be coming back after the Plan 9 by 9 podcast has run its course. So that will be happening, hopefully. Fingers and tentacles crossed. I'm trying to think of any other podcasting stuff I've got going on. And outside of uh, a couple of projects that I'm not quite ready to announce, I think that's about it. But Stay tuned to monstergoodradio.net because I'll blab about it there first. Well, you're obviously a very busy man. Try to be, especially since I've got a bunch of other stuff going on, like our YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) The creatively named Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel is (laughs) is on YouTube at youtube.com slash monsterkidradio. And uh, in fact, later this afternoon, Rod, I think... You'll be proud of me. I'm finally going to record the first episode of my series, Catching Up with Paul Nashie. Ah, good. Thank where you. Good. I'm going to be looking at Paul Nashie's genre films uh, chronologically. Not having a lot of experience with Paul Nashie, I'm eager to get into it. And I can tell you, Rod, spoiler alert to anybody who wants to know and just skip the first episode, but please don't. I really enjoyed Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, and I'm going to talk about that in the first episode. Well, it's, it's a great film, regardless of the fact that that title is just as misleading as hell. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> and I'll mention that too. But no, it's a fun film. I've watched it three times now uh, in preparation for this thing, and I haven't gotten bored any time. So, have you ever? Got, well, I don't know which version of the film you got to see. Were you were you able to uh, <clears throat> probably illegally get your hands on the longer Spanish version? No. Um, is that something I need to see? It's interesting. It, it won't. There's not any extra monster stuff, so don't get you know super excited. But there's a lot more character stuff in the first, say, like thirty or forty minutes. There's you can see why it got trimmed out because it's not really necessary. But once you see it, it's really nice to have seen it because it gives you more time with uh, Nashi's character before the story really gets rolling. It's pretty neat. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to it. I, I won't delay recording the YouTube yeah, I, video. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. But it's it's a it's. I wouldn't say it's a curiosity because it's you know the it's the original version of the film before it got trimmed down for the English dub. But it's worth checking out if you ever get curious about it. Okay. So yeah, we've got that coming up on YouTube, and then uh, you know I, I release every episode of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast. It has a YouTube video now too. So if listeners aren't subscribed, they can but they use YouTube, they can find it there. I'm really trying to up my uh, subscriber count over there and the number of minutes people are watching because once you get to a certain threshold, we can start partaking in the AdSense program and, you know, just allows us to grow even further. So if you're a YouTube user, please consider subscribing over there. Uh, And I have just spun off another YouTube channel (laughs) (laughs) Uh, called Comicstalgia. I'm a relapsed or lapsed or relapsed. I don't know. I used to love comic books growing up and drifted away and I'm coming back now. And as a guy who used to love these comics, it's been really interesting to watch what's happened with the MCU and the superhero stuff and just getting into comic books again. And I've got two videos that I've posted that were originally on the monster kid radio channel. I've moved over to comic stalgia. Uh, and I imagine heck maybe even this weekend, I'm going to shoot something for comic stalgia cause I'm going to a comic con. So cool. Uh, That'll be coming. It's a separate channel. Subscribe to that separately. Um, and then I've got a bunch of writing that I'm doing. So, <laughs> <laughs> see, this is because I'm unemployed right now. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad you're not trying to fit all of this in between actually, you know, being gainfully employed. Well, that and sleep. Those are the two things that get in the way. All the <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, Monster Kid Writer. .com is my quote-unquote official website for my writing. Not very active right now because I've been spending most of my writing time writing fiction as opposed to blog posts, which I hear is what you need to do if you want to publish something. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm told. And either by the time this episode comes out or shortly thereafter, I will have released a collection of short stories called Supernatural Solutions from the Case Files of Mark Temple. Uh, Mark Temple is a monster hunter character, and this collection of stories are about him eliminating certain supernatural or monster threats for hire. <laughs> cool. Uh, where would uh, where would people be able to pick that up if they want to read it? So it's going to be independently published through Amazon. It will be available as an ebook there, so you can get it on your Kindle or your Kindle app for your iPad or any other tablet or reading device. It'll be available there, two ninety nine. Um, but that will be coming. I do have an author page set up on Amazon, so you can just follow me there because that's where it will be posted. Uh, and I anticipate, like I said, that being done here within the next few weeks. I'm just finishing the a bit of editing on the final story right now. Cool, man. That's you got you've got more irons in the fire than I would have ever thought. 
Do, do you want to hear about the weird Western I'm writing? Holy crap. Really? <laughs> what kind of Western? What, what is it? It's a weird Western. And uh, I've started mentioning this to some people, and I figure the more I put it out into the the ether, into the world, the more real it has to be, the more committed I am to it. Mm -hmm. So coming soon, maybe by the end of this year, a novel called They Call Him Boneyard. Mm, They Call Him Boneyard, yes. Do I detect a – well, you said weird western, so I'm assuming we're talking a horror western? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're going to combine my interest in Spaghetti Western and the classic monsters. Nice. So that's in the works. And I anticipate, like I said, it being done by the end of the year. Uh, Maybe even have a couple of sample chapters available at Monster Bash this June when I'm going to be there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. That's that's when we'll get to see each other again. That's right. Where we'll have the premiere of the movie House of the Gorgon that I did all the sound design on. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. God, you are busy. Sound of the Gorgon or House of the Gorgon is so good. Is okay, hold so on. Good. Sound of the Gorgon. Yeah, Sound that. of the Gorgon. That should be like the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> or the name of the special feature featuring me doing the sound effects. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, because like, you need something else to do. Well, yeah, I do. But House of the Gorgon is fantastic for listeners who don't know. It's Joshua Kennedy's. Uh, new film. It's already had its sneak preview in London that did so well. They held it over for another weekend, uh, and its official its official world premiere will be happening at Monster Bash with Josh Kennedy in attendance, as well as stars Caroline Monroe, Veronica Carlson, Christopher Neem, and Martine Beswick, who are all in the film. I'm I looking to forward to seeing that. Yeah. I got to do sound. I got to record and I'm sorry, not record, but manipulate the recordings of Veronica Carlson's voice. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's awesome. So, <laughs> that, that sounded filthy. It, yeah. But you know, I mean, they have that technology now where you can just feed your dialogue or your voice into a, a computer and it can feed back whatever sentence you wanted to say. So <laughs> I'm thinking I should take all the audio that I have of like Veronica Carlson and Carolyn Monroe and I have them come back on and, and say very nice things about me. Kiss my neck, Derek. <laughs> this is getting really creepy. Is that what happens when you podcast for almost, what, three hours now? It could be, yeah. Is that what happens? Well, folks, now that we've heard <laughs> just everything oh, wait, under one the one more sun, thing. No, I'm kidding. I knew you would have one. I knew you would have something else. I knew it. No, that's it. That's it. We're good. Okay. We're good. Other things, if I mention, they're not firm enough yet. So. <laughs> You well, at least you are using your time effectively. I still actually enjoy sleeping, so yeah, whatever. It's such a waste of time, though. I mean, that's <laughs> that's six to eight hours a day. I could be podcasting or pre- editing YouTube videos or something, anything. Who knows? Yeah, really? <laughs> okay, you podcasting, writing, filmmaking lunatic. You <laughs> here in the next few months. Uh, folks, we haven't set a date yet, but uh, eventually here later this year, Derek and I will sit down to cover the next two William Castle Westerns in this DVD set. Uh, the next two are both, well, they're both films that were released in 1954. Uh, and if you look at, if you look at Mr. Castle's career, 1954 was a busy year. He was really pumping them out. He had six movies out that year. Or is it, wait, I'm sorry, seven? You know, before we started recording today, we established that you and I are not very good at math, so I'm going to stay away from this one. Uh, There are eight (laughs) movies that he supposedly directed that came out in 1954. So next time we're going to cover two of them. We'll cover a small fraction of William Castle's 1954 output. 
the two films will be uh, Jesse James versus the Daltons and Masterson of Kansas. So uh, the next time Mr. Derek Cook and I sit down, why do I sound creepy? Why did I do that? I don't know. That made no sense. <laughs> anyway, the next time we talk about William Castle Westerns, it'll be Masterson of Kansas and Jesse James versus the Daltons. So if you want to play along at home, there you go. It's a cheap just, set, folks. <laughs> just let me know when you want me to come back on because my schedule obviously is wide open. <laughs> yeah, you've got, you've got nothing going on. Right? I feel like the biggest slacker in the world. I, I oh, feel impressed when I get two podcasts out a month. I consistently put too much on my plate. It's, just, it's how it is. But, you know, I love creating. I love all this stuff. Wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you for being on the show, man. No, it was great. I had a, I had a blast. Um, a little bummed that I'm not with Troy, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Sorry to be such a disappointment, sir. No, this was awesome. You and I need to podcast more together. This was, this was a blast. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, man. It was late in the summer of 92 when Bertram the drummer, an out-of-town slummer, a real up-and-comer, came through. Now the ways of the masher were truly Bert's. A Tiffany flasher, a corned beef and hasher, with plenty of cashier for skirts. He was all spruced up like a cameo. He was orange juiced up and raring to go when round about quarter to eight. And now a glass figure named Kate, waltzing by, caught his eye, and Bertram the drummer met a fate. I remember well how the years do fly. It was down at the Glasgow's Ball that Kitty Purcell gave young Bertram the eye. And bingo, he started to call. Oh, you kid, oh, you kid. Did she give him the bits Katie did? As the eyes go on, pretty face go on. With a handsome young stranger named Paul.